ramifying of the biblical text in the commentary of the early church fathers has this analogy in the way that painters and sculptors and mosaicists and icon writers and, and now in the modern era installation artists and all and film artists the, the, these are ways in which the, the bible proves itself to be a vital and living text i want to get your title correct ben you, you you're going to have to say it for me so i'm professor of christianity and the arts at king's college london christianity okay. and the arts so it's it's plural arts um okay. and that was probably initially uh, just a way of uh, when this job was created because I'm fortunate enough to be the first person in the post. Um, they they wanted to frame it in a way that allowed a specialist in various strands of the arts to apply. Okay. Um, so they weren't they were keeping their options open. Okay. Uh, but actually, my my love of this is partly that that the arts are plural and. And I have a background in literature and have progressively moved more into the visual arts over time. But my first degree was in English literature. And then wow. I did a PhD on a Swiss Catholic theologian of the 20th century called Hans Urs von Balthasar. Oh, of course. Of course, That's, you will know. Of course, yes. Um, who wrote a seven volume theological aesthetics. Yes. And then a five volume uh, work called Theodrama, which treats drama theater and theology I together realize that i knew about the aesthetics it, and then he actually then wrote uh, there was a three volume final stage to this trilogy so 15 volumes in all at least in the english translation the final three volumes this is teutonic scholarship the yes. final three volumes uh were called the theologic so these three parts were um a, an attempt to rework the medieval transcendentals of truth goodness and beauty Ah. The theological aesthetics, the seven volumes, were the beauty part. The theodrama is the goodness part, is about action and action. how you act well. And then theologic was the truth part. Wow. But what he did, and this was so important in, in his work, was he began with beauty. Then you move to the good and then you move to the true. So the, the, the doorway to the true has to be through beauty. You see. That's where um, you start. And that, that fascinated me. So actually, I, but I began, because of my literary interests, I began with the theodrama, and that's why I started to work on him. Because um, I, I wanted to combine theology with, with my own literary studies from the past. And, but the more I became um, invested in Balthazar's thought and involved with Balthazar's thought, the more aware I became of this first, fascinating first part of the trilogy on beauty. And more and more, I started to think, this is really interesting, the visual art stuff. Yeah. So it was creeping up on me all the time from another part of Balthazar's huge <laughs> oeuvre. Um, and so when I came to King's, that had already become something I was beginning to think and write about a lot. Oh, wow. Um, and wow. then within the first year of being in London, this was now, this is 2007, so over, over a decade ago, um, I had a, a wonderful lunch with the then director of the National Gallery in London, Nick, Nicholas Penny. Yes. And we talked about the idea of a, a master's programme that would allow theology and, and art history to be taught together yeah. in the same classroom by specialists in both disciplines. And that's the beginning of a story that you know well. Yes. It, it, he said yes. 
and yeah. we began the MA, which has been um, really, it's still the only one in the world of its kind. Wow. And it's generated so many wonderful things out of it. And uh, not least the students themselves who've gone on to do all sorts of things in the church, in the academy, in schools, in, in public life. Um, but with this way of thinking through art, thinking about Christianity through art. It's a master's in Christianity and the arts. And the arts. So, but the, at, the, at the center of it are these two modules taught in the National Gallery in London, actually in the gallery. So we teach them two hours every week in a seminar room for the first hour in the gallery. And then we go out onto the gallery floor and they stand in front of the works of art and we, we bring the perspectives of Christian theology and the perspectives of art history to bear on the works that we're looking at. And they come alive through the interaction of yeah. those different perspectives in ways that are not just enriching for the students, but for, the for those of us who teach as well. I mean, I've learned so much from teaching alongside specialists in the art history world. And I, I hope, I think it's true the other way around. Yeah, I, well, I know from one in particular it is, um, but, but I know from all the other fellows, they think it is too. Yeah. Um, because now there have been, what, four fellows or five? Yeah. Four. The, uh, the fourth one is now in post. And is Yost. Yost Yastra, yeah. And am I, I, I hope I'm allowed to say that this is, this is all thanks to you and Howard yeah. who've created yeah. these fellowships because the, this, this succession of now four Amundsen Fellows um, are, are the backbone of the teaching in the gallery for the students. They're the, they bring the art historical perspective. Um, they often also invite other curators in as well, but they, they are the anchor people for the National Gallery's um, contribution to our joint teaching. And each one of them has had remarkable gifts and all slightly different. Yes. And yeah. each of them, out of the experience of working at this intersection of theology and visual art, have, have produced not just teaching, but something else as well. So exhibition, two exhibitions yep. um, to date, and there'll be more, I'm sure, um, uh, films, books, yeah. 3D digital reconstructions yeah. of churches yeah. that have been the first ever in the gallery. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So again, the, the kind of, the, the fruit of this collaboration has gone in all directions. Well, I have to, for the, the record here, I, I, I told um, Paul Gladder, who is the executive um, editor of, of Religion Unplugged, and um, I said, well, you know, I have to put a caveat in this. this is, these are projects that Howard and I have been involved in and been supporters of. So he said, yeah. go ahead as long as you say so. So I now um, have said so. so I'm glad, yeah. Because of that lunch you had with Nick Penny, um, because we had already supported projects at the National Gallery. And he said to Dawson Carr, who was still there, um, yeah. he said, Dawson, do you know someone who might be interested in this? And Dawson said, yeah, I think I do. And he, yeah. I get this email from Dawson. Look at this, Roberta. And he said, this sounds like you. And I emailed him back and said, you're right, but I do have to talk to Howard. Anyway, so we, so we talked it over and... and the rest, as they say, is history. But, Absolutely. Uh, but it's been wonderful. And then out of it grew. How many, how many graduates have you had of the program? Um, we have about 15 students a year on the programs. Some most full-time, some part-time. But 
that product so in over 10 years we're we're looking at over 100 alumni wow. now wow and um wow and they are we hope to gather them all when the pandemic permits it yes. um oh. to celebrate that 10 years and find out some of them i know what they're doing they've kept in touch yeah uh we'd love to know what the others are doing and we so we're we're going to try and gather them all at the gallery oh. One of them had, had worked at the Museum of Biblical Art, the late great Museum of Biblical Art in that, New York. That's right. And she came and did the master. She did, yeah, she that did. Was really, that was um, wonderful. That was fantastic. And we've had quite a number of students from the US who've come on the program. Um, and we have lots applying for this coming um, fall. Wow. So I wow. hope them. But so it's, it's, it's attracted a lot of people from the US as well as from Singapore, India, um, Chile, Peru, and oh. really an Australia, um, huge international range of wow. people. Wow. And I think it is because no one else is doing it. Yeah. Well, and, and, where, and where better to do it? Well, true, London has so much to offer yeah. in that way. Yeah. And it, and it, it fulfills a hunger that, not, that is there. Um, and and powerful um, and often intensified by people's frustration when they study um, for example study art history or um, art criticism and they don't they aren't allowed to talk about the religious dimensions of the works there's a kind of uh, disciplinary taboo almost in some cases the, the Hal Foster effect right from from Princeton Right, yeah. yeah, and and a whole culture around October Magazine and so on, which which has made the dis the serious discussion of the religious right. dimensions of art um, off limits and embarrassing somehow. Yeah. Um, this is, I hope, through the work of people like Jonathan Anderson at Biola and others, that's beginning to change. Um, and the the best way to change it is to have a quality of discourse that is not easily dismissed so you you you, you prove through through Quality. speaking well about art and sensitively and in an informed and perceptive way yeah. but also with theological um resources that yeah. display their merit because they they actually bring even more out of the works um well, well in the, the former director of the of the museum of biblical art the founding director anna heller was herself not a not a believer. Uh, uh, she called herself um, an agnostic, mm. uh, but at, at the same time, she had grown up in communist Romania, yeah. where you couldn't talk about what the pictures meant. Yeah, and that got her interested, and so she became a. She studied Renaissance. Her, her specialty was was Florentine Renaissance art, um, because she wanted to be able to talk about what they meant, and the yeah. context and. That's why she made a great director for that museum. I, she was perfect in my opinion, because yes. of, because she was genuinely curious about the theological dimensions of the art, because they'd been kept from her. You don't paint paintings of the of the crucifixion just because it's a nice composition. Yeah, she was not. So she was. You know, don't don't uh, insult my intelligence. I know they didn't paint these paintings because they just needed. I don't think so. Yeah. So please, let's talk about what they mean and what they meant to the people and yeah. the context they were painted for. So because we don't understand it if we don't do that. So yes. she was a, a great director for that museum. 
Yeah, well, and the benefits of this are for far more than the Christian faithful because the, yeah. the um, ability to understand why theological questions matter and have mattered to, to generations of people in, our, in yeah. lots of our shared world cultures, yes. why those questions of faith have mattered to these people and matter now to millions and millions of them. Yeah is a necessary human capacity. You have to be able to empathize with and enter into those worlds of thought and feeling, which are part of the lives of so many. People have often said, people who give pastoral counseling, pastoral care, um, often say that that some of the best conversations happen when, not when you're face to face, but side by side. Even driving in a car together. Yeah. um, And on a long journey and things happen in a conversation like that. But actually, the side-by-side in front of a work of art has that effect, and sometimes in spades, because work gives you so much to talk about that's deep, that goes deep, if it's good work, if it's good work. People will talk about religion when they're looking at art in a way they will never talk about it in really any other context. Well, let's move to to the other thing that grew out of this. Um, which is the visual commentary. Um, it did another lunch. This is, there's a pattern. Having lunch, Ben. Things, <laughs> we need to have lunch again. Anyway, maybe no, I can't not, wait. No, no, let's get, um, but, but Howard had the idea, my husband, yes. that, um, that w- because we had been uh, the, the sponsor or the supporter or whatever for um, the ancient Christian commentary on scripture, which Thomas Oden um, edited and was really his life's great achievement, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he had many, but I'd say that's the crowning glory yeah. of his life. And, and, and it had surprised everyone because um, we, when, when that project started in the mid nineties, um, you know, the hope was we could sell 10,000 copies. And the last check, it had sold 800,000. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, who's, they're wanting to read these guys, the, the, the most recent of whom died in, um, 790 something, um, or when did B die? Maybe he died in the early 800s, not sure. Um, but at any rate, that's, that's how recent these guys are. And yeah. some of them are writing in 135 or something. And Howard understood that, um, that the, in, the Protestant Reformation happened at the same time as a technological revolution, which was print. Uh, and print helped the Reformation and the Reformation helped print. And it also established, um, you know, the, it's Luther's German that is the major German language. It's those, those sorts of things. It's, it's Calvin's French, his translation of the Bible that is yeah. the standard French. I mean, on it goes. Um, and so he realized that we're now living in another technological revolution of which the image is central. And um, what kind of commentary do you do for that? Because... Yeah. Because of Luther, uh, the, the letters of Paul, for example, were emphasized and understood in a way they'd never been before. Mm. So what does it mean when we're in a technological communications revolution where the image is central? What does that mean for how we interpret the Bible? Yeah. What, what, what part of the Bible resonates more in an image culture, yes. whereas the letters of Paul, which aren't, full, you know, they aren't easily put into images, yeah. um, uh, had a had a, a profound effect on thinking and all of that. So anyway, we were having this conversation, and Howard said he thought there ought to be a visual commentary, and 
and you said you'd like to do it. You know, you sometimes get a feeling that you're at a moment where something, where two paths diverge in the woods, you know, the Robert Frost yes. yeah. That was one yeah. of the moments yeah. like that. Um, but it did feel as though that vision that, that Howard had had and also the way in which you'd been um, supporting exhibitions like the great Caravaggio exhibition in 2005 in the National Gallery that, 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 and exhibitions that were really prepared to, to take very often very biblical subject matter. I mean, Caravaggio's work is often very much yeah. very closely attentive yeah. to the Bible um, and allow its power as a story to, to emerge visually. That was all kind of part of my formation in the time, in the, in the years coming up, you know, leading up to that lunch that we had. So it yeah. felt when, when this idea was shared, when you shared this idea, um, it was like the distillation or the articulation of something that I had been feeling around for and, and, um, and then it just all came together in that moment. Um, so I'm glad I took this path. <laughs> I haven't looked back. All thanks to Von Balthazar. Well, I didn't well, know that. Well, lots of things, you know, you think, well, what were, you know, seeds were planted all along the way, but the, the parallel actually with the ancient Christian commentary on scripture is, it, it's much closer than it might initially seem because the ancient Christian commentary on scripture is, is all text. Yes. You have a whole bookshelf of them. They're excerpts from some of the most perceptive and also um, faithful uh, yeah. early church fathers um, in both East and West covering the entire canon of Christian scripture and and it shows you the way in which scripture comes alive in its reception over yes. time yeah and that is actually the most important parallel with the visual commentary on scripture it's about how scripture continues to come alive in its reception all the time in this case the visual reception of it so what what the church fathers were doing with their commentaries which always repay yeah. revisits by us yeah. modern people we have so much to learn from them and part of tom odin's achievement was to persuade so many people often from traditions of the church that didn't mu read much early church theology that yes. um, our modernity actually has put certain restrictions yeah. on us that, that that we need to take off and we need to relearn from the ancients anyhow the 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 commentary, the, the ramifying of the biblical text and the commentary of the early church fathers has this analogy in the way that painters and sculptors and mosaicists and icon writers um, and, and now in the modern era installation artists and all and film artists, the, the, these are ways in which the, the Bible proves itself to be a vital and living text. It is not just a historical document. Yeah. It's part of a uh, a world that that God has made which is still unfolding this world this world is unfolding in new receptions of the Bible all the time yeah um, so to take to take um, groups of works of art and gather them around a passage of the Bible which is what we do in the visual commentary each exhibition as we call it has a biblical text at the heart of it and that if you like is the theme or the topic of the exhibition to gather around that text three works of art that are in dialogue with it and with each other is actually to do something very like what those yeah. 
those pages of the ancient Christian commentary are doing. Yeah. It's just that the, this is where metaphor comes in, the voices that are talking to each other and talking to the biblical text are now visual, in some cases visual. Yeah. Well, and, and there's a curator, if you like, who's doing yeah. the, who's gathering the, the artworks. And, um, and you know, in a, in a world where people, especially young people, are talking in images, as you were saying, they literally will yeah. often message each other with only an image. Yeah. Um, or they'll make one image comment on another image, again, with no words at all. Yeah. This is um, something paratextual, but very sophisticated. Yep. Um, and so what we're doing is trying to, to explore how that becomes a way of refreshing our vision, refreshing our relationship with scripture, seeing it in new ways and being found by it in new ways. And it, it amazes and encourages me that now the, the parts of the Christian church that have traditionally used visual art in worship um, and devotion, especially Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions, are being joined now by yes. evangelical, charismatic, yeah. Pentecostal yeah. traditions um, who recognize this as a language in which mission can be done. Yep. And, and if you're called to proclaim the gospel in many languages, you may, you, in, in our age, you may not neglect the language of the visual arts because it's one of those languages. Yeah. And perhaps yeah. one of the most important. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Howard's insight is is a Kairos insight. You know that this is a completely mm. unprecedented moment mm. in terms of the emergence of visual communication as a language, crossing all denominations. So it's also a new ecumenical moment. Yes. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It's got more people thinking about what I've I've heard that a major um, and I haven't been there, but there's a major um, non-denominational. Um, church that grew out of the seeker movement in the United States, um, out of a pla place called Peninsula Bible Church, mm. who had a pastor whose name was Ray Steadman, and he was very, he's kind of an exegetical preacher, mm -hmm. um, but it started, you know, because people were hungry for knowing, for something deeper, let's just put it that way, and, and studying the text that way um, had a big appeal in the 70s and 80s after the Jesus movement in the United States, mm. and so this this church, which grew and, and has had many offshoots, um, I mean, it keeps planting churches in other parts of the county. So it, rather than becoming one church of 50,000 people or something, they'd start another one. And so mm. there's Mariners and Voyagers, and they all have names. And now some of them are changing their names. It's all fine. Anyway, um, at some point, and they, they met in a big box, which many of the those secret churches, big boxes. They don't look like churches. They look like warehouses um, yeah. with a stage and all that sort of stuff. But at some point, um, and I don't know how long ago this was, maybe 20 years, maybe 25, um, they noticed that nobody wanted to get married in their church. Mm. So they were all being, they were all asked to officiate to go to some Catholic church or some other church that looked like a church because they yes. wanted to get married in a place that looked like a church. And so in the congregation is a man who um, is an architect. He had worked for Disney. Um, he's a lovely person. And uh, they asked him to build a church that looked like a church on their property. <laughs> so he built 
he designed a chapel and it looks like a church. Um, it's got, you know, points and steeple, you know, stuff that looks like a church. It's looking <laughs> heaven. It's not a box. It has, it looks like a church. And um, I don't think it has stained glass windows though. But it's a very California, Northern Californian, out in the woods church yeah. with, you know, and lots of light and wonderful wood and, you know, an altar. I mean, you know. Yeah. So, and so now I'm told, and so it ended up that they had two congregations, one that met in the big box and one that met in the church that looked like a church. On, it's all on the same campus with a huge playground and a, I mean, it's amazing thing. Anyway, I was just told this week by somebody was that it's become more and more like an Anglican liturgy. That's interesting in the church that looks like a church. They yeah. still do the band and the whole thing in the box. Yeah. But they, have, but they have this church that looks like a church and the people are interested in a deeper way of worshiping. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's made deep inroads into the non-denominational and Protestant denomination. Yeah. There was a movement here, I don't know if it was also in the States, but it, certainly in London called Deep Church. I think it was picking up a phrase from C.S. Lewis. Yes. Yes. And, um, and it was a movement mainly of charismatic and evangelical pastors from various denominations who wanted to reconnect with liturgy, with traditional forms of prayer and spirituality, wow. and with art. And that's that sense of the, of the deepening. Yes. I think both the, the ancient Christian commentary and the visual commentary can help, help people with, actually. Yeah. As Oscar Wilde said of beauty, there is a void. Human, humanity will fill it. Um, yeah. And he, the void was for beauty in his. Yeah. And, uh, there is a void. And there yes, is. There is. Well, we sent out to our mailing list um, when you did the, um, and maybe you could talk about it a little bit. You did the special Holy Week mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, visual commentaries. I'll put it that way. And I yeah. got response from all kinds of people how That's much that meant to them. Yeah. It was the first time we've tried that, and so it was very encouraging. We shared one exhibition a day from Palm Sunday yeah. onwards, and then actually right up till Easter Monday. Um, and it was uh, just a, an, it was an experiment. We wanted to see whether this would meet a need. We didn't want to drive people away who were not religious, but right. um, it didn't, we didn't. Um, we, we found that the numbers of people subscribing to our mailing list went up very, very quickly. Wow. At the beginning of the week. And, 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 um, and, it, and there weren't people who were unsubscribing. So uh, that was just a, that was a relief and, a, and an encouragement to us. We often didn't go for the obvious route where we just illustrated the events of right. the day. Um, partly because we didn't always have uh, an exhibition, just we didn't have Jesus on a donkey on Palm Sunday. We haven't, that one's still being written actually. So we did, we often looked at the lectionary and we looked at the readings that were not necessarily the main gospel, but one of the traditional readings that goes along with it. And yeah. that gave us all kinds of ideas about how to enrich people's journey through Holy Week. Wow. So we looked, for example, on Palm Sunday at the Christ hymn in Philippians. And, yes. you know, the entry into Jerusalem as, as the, as the self-emptying of the sun, as, as, Paul outlines it in Philippians. And then you have three works of art chosen to explore that self-emptying. Yeah. You've got a very powerful way to dwell in Palm Sunday. Yeah. 
um, and we did that for each day and that yeah that was great uh, and the other great discovery we made after that because we were encouraged and, and wanted to think what should we do now was that we we looked at all of the Sunday uh, all of the Sundays between now and the end of the year this present year and we found we had an exhibition that related to one of the the lectionary readings for every Sunday between now oh, and the end. So that's, that was a great moment for us because we realized we had achieved a certain kind of critical mass in the project yeah. where we had enough to start sharing a weekly exhibition. Wow. And um, for those people who are preparing worship resources or writing sermons, that could be something to help them each week and they know, know to rely on there being something for them every week. So we've started posting that exhibition on the Monday before, right. before yes. the Sunday that it relates to. Um, but even if you don't have those sorts of responsibilities, um, the sense of seasonal movement can still yeah. be an enriching one, I think, for people. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and we've also, if, if people are keen on social media, we've, we release not just an exhibition a week, but we break it down um, and we suggest just one of the three artworks in that exhibition for each day, Monday to Wednesday, um, so that they can really spend time with just one work. Yeah. We have nearly 500 works of art on the site. They're all high resolution. They're all zoomable. They're, they're fabulously rich to look at slowly. And the internet is not a, a traditionally a place people do slow looking. No. But we can actually offer that. So for people who want to, they can just look at one work each day and then oh. move to the comparative commentary where all three works come together on a Thursday. Oh. And they can write their sermon on a Friday, if that's what they need, <laughs> for Sunday. And then it starts again the next Monday. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're really pleased that we've got to the stage where we can do that. How many are there now? So we have um, just under 200 exhibitions uh, on the site. When you think that each of those is three artworks um some of them are awaiting permissions from the artists so we actually got more week than we can show right now but uh particularly contemporary works can take a lot longer interesting but that means we have uh, either live or just about to go live we have uh about 203 that means 600 works of art wow yeah and the so goal that's, is 1500 that's, isn't it yeah and the goal is 1500 wow. the um that's the ambitious goal we're faced constantly with difficult decisions about how to divide up scripture yeah. so that we can fulfill our ambition to cover it. Yes. But not drown in the possibilities, which are yeah. of course endless. It being scripture, the possibilities yeah. are endless. Yeah. So you can't, you can't do it verse by verse. No, you can't. There would be, no. well, we, would all, we would all be in the grave <laughs> right. before it was finished. Um, so we, we, we reckon one and a half thousand is about right. And some parts of scripture will be longer and some parts will be shorter. And often that will be where artists themselves have dwelt for longest yeah. with particular passages. Yeah. We often decide on the length of a passage in conversation with a curator who wants to write about something and they will have a very particular idea which bit they want to write about which works of art they want to use uh, and so we don't 
always prescribe in advance, this must be this long, this passage must be this long. We, we listen to what a curator wants to write about and then we make a, a decision. Well, describe, describe the process a little bit for people who might be interested. So we have three, uh, we have a core team of, um, I direct the project and then we have three, a team of three who are working on it, who represent the different academic specialisms that need to come together for this to be a responsible project um, to both theology and art history and biblical studies. So the deputy director of the project is Jennifer Slivka, who's a trained art historian and curator. And wonderful. And she, she's curated some fantastic exhibitions at the National Gallery and, and yeah. elsewhere, and, and, um, and also taught on the master's program that we run and helped to devise it. She combines um, now 10 years worth of exposure to me <laughs> and, to what, and in the form of me to what theology is like and strange sorts of things that theologians say um, and now she's no longer shocked by that and she can anticipate some of the things that theologians might say but she's really knows the art history as well she's john hopkins phd she's um wonderful so yeah. she so she's our art historical conscience i call her hmm. and if we start doing something that just is wrong that no art historian would allow she <laughs> tells us very quickly uh, and then we have another full-time research uh a, a research associate called Michelle Fletcher, who's a biblical studies scholar. She's principally a specialist in the book of Revelation. Oh, wow. Incidentally, it's the most visualized book of the Bible. There yeah. are more artworks responding to the book of Revelation than any other. Interesting. So very, you know, this is the product of John the Seer, John, the, John of Patmos. Yeah. And it's about visuals. And it, yeah, it is. It is. It's, yeah. yeah. Anyhow, so she, but she, uh, she's our biblical studies conscience and she knows about biblical languages and she can very quickly uh, spot if somebody is abusing the text, shall we say. Okay. So we, we want the text to come alive in new interpretations, but we also recognize that um, creative readings of the text also need to be answerable to, to its semantic and- You can't be making it up etymological yeah. and all of that stuff so she can do all of that stuff which is great and chloe redaway is the third member of the team who is a, a also uh she's actually herself interdisciplinary in that she did a phd in visual theology looking at florentine oh. fresco cycles as the as theology yeah so she she's got the art historical chops i think as you say yes. in america yes. and yes. But she, she she thinks of um visual art as functioning theologically and that's very good for this project yeah we we're the team and um we are we approach contributors from the same three disciplines that we collectively represent so we have we have curators on, on the visual commentary on scripture who are principally art historians by training some of them in art history departments in universities worldwide but some of them museum directors uh Neil McGregor, who was once uh, director of the uh, National Gallery and then the British Museum, has written. Gabriele Finaldi is writing for us. Yes. Um, we have Nick Penny in our sites. So <laughs> good, good. Th those so people who work in the, the world of museums, who are of course all scholars, um, they're writing for us. Theologians write for us, and biblical studies scholars write for us, and um, and also artists, practicing artists, who have a different kind of knowledge. Yes. that comes through their practice. Yeah. Um, it's very precious as well. 
so we have a vast wish list of right of contributors on a big database on our computers and we we are constantly looking for more and we we're especially looking for increasingly international and diverse uh, range of contributors which as well as of artworks which is very important for the project also quite challenging yeah. because uh, most major search engines will turn up the kinds of things you would expect to find in major western art galleries right it's a game to do with beaten tracks rather and getting off the beaten track which we want to do is harder work you have to do more detective work so one of the things that our team is doing is turning over some of the stones that people that are not the, the google search and partly you just have to have a lot of conversations with people who are specialists in less well-known areas of art yeah. um, and ask them and then you have to find the artwork so if you want high resolution images of the kind i've described and there's a work of art in um, the jungle in Indonesia and no one has photographed it right. in high resolution. You, yeah. you have to make a decision. Is this yeah. worth sending someone to photograph? Yeah. You know, those yeah. sorts of questions that are part of the, the fun and the challenge of this project. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. so we, we look all the time for a match between a curator, a biblical passage and some artworks. And some of the curators come knowing exactly the biblical passage they've, they want to write about, but with no idea of, of the, art. the art. Some people come knowing exactly the artwork they want to write about and need a lot of help biblical. finding the right passage that will help them talk about it or, or theological resources that will help them unpack it, not just as an art object that won't just say, what what is this object and how was it made but right. to go back to what we were talking about before why was it made yeah. um and and what does it mean what does it mean not just what did it mean but what does it mean what yeah. might it mean yeah um as these new contexts of interpretation keep unrolling through the work of the spirit in the world you know that's that's a question we yeah think is central My, one of the things i suggest to our curators is that they're not just studying reception history, they are making reception history. So they're making new connections between a scriptural passage and an artwork that no one's made before, mm. which other people one day might study mm. as reception history. That they, they, can, they can receive the text anew in the present as they curate their exhibition. They, yeah. can, do, they can join it with some visual works of art that they may that may never have been linked with that passage before because the, the works of art needn't only be an illustration of the text they can be a catalyst to the text because for example both the text and the artwork are interested in the same deep questions well ben i i'm i don't know what time it is i haven't looked um so i i don't know how are is there is there anything that we haven't covered do you think oh we've covered so, so much and you probably I know, know, I know what's the stamina of your listeners i don't know well i i did i did one talk about this uh, on the first and on. podcast i did ended up being 57 minutes and um and and they said they'd cut it and then when they listened to it they put the whole thing up so i don't know <laughs> how this will come out um so yeah but i i think we're probably about there i think because yeah. we're an hour we're a little over an hour so um yeah. so what what else would i mean is there anything else that you'd like to say about the visual commentary well, apart from thank you for the vision um, and 
and the support in in shaping it and making it happen because it is an astonishing thing that this hasn't happened in one way it's an astonishing thing well, you know maybe, 2000 years of christianity and nobody did this nobody did this but it's partly because again talking of kairos moments it's partly the technology makes it possible yes you know when you think that and in a way it almost feels i'm aware that we have to almost uh, operate with a kind of asceticism um because for many christians for most of christian history they would have known only a handful of works of art and lived with them all their lives in their church there would have been yeah. one virgin mary and you know one yeah. john the baptist and and that would have one been there in their right. town or village. and then and that would have been enough because these works kept on giving yeah. um so there's there's always a risk of the kind of the deluge of of works of art that, that we can now access that you you in a way um, treat them with less care and um, spend less time with them than you might but anyway that's one of the things we we have to risk I think yeah. uh, the positive side of that is how much we can all share now because yeah. uh, even if we can't travel um, and that's all the more the case now in this pandemic. We can still yeah. benefit from these extraordinary achievements of human skill and, um, you know, and response to God, the wonder of God's world. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that that's the the hope that this becomes more and more something that people find in, um, a companion to them as they yeah. explore art, as they explore the Bible, perhaps for the first time. Um, or perhaps rediscover it and um, and explore the, the, the shared cultural inheritance which is all of ours and make contributions to the future of it because this is as I said a creative activity it's not just study of history you do learn a lot about history from it but it's also a way of um, making new connections and shaping new visions I heard a great thing the other day on, on the radio here in in Britain that says that prophet, prophets do three things. They analyze the situation, they empathize, mm. and then they imagine. Mm. We are dealing with the, thing, the, the things we're dealing with at the moment. There's lots of analysis going on. Yeah. There's lots of empathy going on. But the third thing really is just as important, and that's we ask, well, what next? And the vision and the arts and the Bible are absolutely fundamental to to having a, an, a, an imaginative vision that will be up to the challenge that we're yeah. facing yeah so I, I hope it will play that sort of role too going going into the future ben yes. thank you for a wonderful conversation maybe thank we'll you. just have to do this for the fun of it sometime yeah i love that yeah <laughs> This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by senior contributor Roberta Amundsen, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to our managing editor, Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com, and it's part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag. <laughs>